This is going to be very revelatory of my age. But you know that JLS tune beat again? Like, it's such a... It's not a happy song, right? Like, they're saying, like, if they don't see the woman again, their heart won't beat again. But it's, you know, it's upbeat. It's upbeat. It's that JLS tune. And then suddenly, they just come out with, if I die, will you come to my funeral? I don't know why, I always burst out laughing. Do I still listen to JLS in 2021? You bet I do. You bet I fucking do. But every single time I would hear that line, I would just burst into laughter because it just takes such a dark turn. And it makes me think, you know, would any of my exes come to my funeral? Probably not. Did you have any exes? You literally just had like short-term flings before you got married. Okay, do you want anything else to share today? Actually, yeah, speaking about funerals, this podcast is about to take a dark turn. So you might have noticed that I was kind of off, well, playing archive material last week, which still is a great story of Miriam Rodriguez. It's still a great hero story. But I was kind of off for a reason, like personal reasons. My husband's brother died of COVID last week, actually on the day that I was about to record the episode. And then for two days, me and him kind of had to like sit on a decision whether or not we're going to go to South Africa, where they're from, for the funeral. And we had to kind of weigh the options out, like... Do we want to go to the country that is on the red list where most of his family already has the virus and his brother just died of it and attend the funeral that is going to have about 50 plus people? After which we will need to return to London to stay in the quarantine hotel and cash out a whole fortune on that to basically not pass on the COVID to anybody. This part isn't really optional to begin with. So we kind of had to sit with the decision whether we're going to do that and then risk one of us getting the virus, other people getting the virus that are attending that funeral, or are we going to be the cunts that are staying here in London, organizing a funeral over Zoom? And we decided to be the cunts staying in London, sending people the link to the Zoom funeral. So that was a decision to be made, and it's just there's no winners. Just like the motto of this whole podcast, nobody wins. There were just no winners when it comes to something like organizing a COVID funeral. And then on top of that, some personal news. As you can hear from my voice, I don't sound like myself. And if you follow me on YouTube, you have probably watched the video on Waninkoff and Karabantes case last week. And I don't know how audible that is, because my nose has been stuck and I kind of lost the sense of smell and taste. Taste-wise, I still feel certain tastes when they're really pungent, you know, when they're like, something is really sour or like really spicy. I don't eat spicy foods. Did not feel that. But yeah, I lost the sense of smell. COVID tests coming up as negative, but I don't know what else can it be. So uh, if anybody has any idea, drop them down in the comments. Diagnose me, please. Because I'd like to, you know, feel healthy for a fucking change and return my sense of smell. You know what's the weirdest part? Not smelling your own shit for about, like, two weeks. 
it's like everybody's like, wow, you can't smell the flowers. You can't smell that orchid that you have in the background. My No, I miss to smell my shit. Like, but you know, this is turning south. It went from like morbid to just south, just downhill. But I just, first of all, I can't smell my bio. So that is sort of like the second point on the list. But the first point is still that I can't smell my shit. Like, you all know that feeling when you just know. I just want to know if I shed healthily or not. Like, yes, I can feel it. Yes, I can technically get up and see it. But it's different when you can smell and you're like, yeah, gotta cut off on what I ate today. I just never thought I will be missing the smell of shit. Well, that is something. Maya, what is this podcast all about? Hi! Maya is the name. Uh, By all means necessary is the game, as you can see from that sign that is behind me right now. You know, some people have the dollar for, like, expensive signs that they then hang behind them, and it's, like, all glowy, they switch it on, it's like neon lights. This bitch suddenly (laughs) decided that she's gonna use her second screen for her podcast. Why did this not cross my mind yet? Because the husband brought it from work recently, so that's why. (laughs) Forever a cheapskate. And what is this podcast all about? Wow, (laughs) if they are here after 10 minutes, they fucking know what it is about. It is about true crime. And this month, we are starting the theme of this week, and the theme is (laughs) almost hitman. Wannabe hitman. Now you're like, But where is the true crime in that? The true crime is in the fucking intent. They almost killed a person. No, but literally nobody asked that question. Like, everybody, it was clear to every single person. And we are starting off with a really famous case of Dalia Di Polito. But before that, let's dive into the two expressions of the day. The first expression we're going to talk about today, the origin of it isn't like super fascinating. The expression is left, right, and center. And as you know, as the avid band listener, I use this expression like willy-nilly. I use it all the fucking time. And left, right, and center means everywhere. It is not super commonly used, but I just use it all the time. But one thing about the origins of the expressions, if you are ever like, in a pub quiz, or like, who wants to be a millionaire, if that is even broadcasted yet, or whatever. Like, if you're ever in a quiz, and somebody quizzes you on the origin of an expression, if we have learned anything, like, we are halfway through the year by now, if you have learned anything from this true crime podcast about expressions as well, well, that is that you can bet your ass that the answer is either that the origin comes from Shakespeare or the military. And life right and center, the origin here comes from the military, because it doesn't sound as ancient. (laughs) Any chance to shit over Shakespeare, I will take it. I will take it with pleasure. So during the wars, when commanders would be getting concerned over being attacked, well, they would run to the defending units, and instead of spending time like referring to different bases, referring to the names of different entrances and points of attack, they would tell people that they're in danger by telling them they're being attacked from left, right, and center. That's it. 
on that expression. Now, the second one I mentioned in the story of Melanie Maguire, and she uses this expression, cut someone off at the knees. And I kind of never heard somebody use that conversationally. And it might be for a reason, because the origins of the expressions are fucking morbid. So, cutting someone off at the knees means to cut someone or something down to its size. So, to make them feel less important, or rather, to make them feel as important as they should be. Reducing them to the proper level of importance, so that their ego isn't, like, super freaking inflated. A lot of people could benefit from it, sometimes including myself. Every single day, you wake up, Maya, and you tell yourself you ain't shit. It ain't about you, you ain't shit. And there are two different versions as to how this expression came about. In the Middle English story of King Arthur, he kills a giant, and he does it first by cutting his legs at the knees, literally cutting him down to size, because, you know, it's a giant, and now it's down to the human size, before actually taking out his sword and administering the final blow. Where people actually think this expression comes from is, of course, ancient Greece. And there was this man in ancient Greece that was called Procrustes, who was ruling this Mount Korydalos. And this man, Procrustes, had a bed in which he would invite passerbys to just spend the night. And here, nobody really fit his bed. Either people were too short, in which case the legend goes that he would stretch them to fit the bed, or if they were too tall, then he would cut them off at their knees in order for them to fit his bed. And he continued this reign of terror until he was captured by Theseus, who fitted Procrustes to his own bed. And Procrustes actually lived on in cultural connotations. So there is a thing called the Procrustean solution, which is the practice where somebody fits the data to tailor whatever they are trying to prove. So let's say, for example, you're trying to prove that aliens exist. You would be disregarding any theories by the government. You would be disregarding anybody saying, well, you don't actually have photographic proof, you don't have any close-ups. Rather, you would be focusing on witness testimonies, on people saying what they have seen, and on the limited images that are of the alien existence online. So by choosing Procrustean solution, you are disregarding data that doesn't prove your idea and putting forward one set of interests at the expense of others. Reminiscing Procrustes's whole life, where he was the one to win at the expense of everybody else. And I wouldn't know of a better way to start the story of Dalia Di Polito, who really put her own interest at the expense of everybody else in her life. In 2009, Dalia Di Polito attempted to get her husband killed, by all means necessary. At the first glance, this could have just been an act for a reality TV show. But once you deep dive into her background, you will realize the levels of manipulation that she resorted to, and that the truth is everything but what is coming out of her mouth. This is the story of Michael DiPolito.
We meet Dahlia on the morning of August the 5th, 2009, and when I say morning, I mean really early in the morning. Around 6am, she actually left her house that she shared with her husband, Michael DiPolito, who she was married to roughly for about 6 months at this point, and she decides to go to the gym. Now, I don't know about you, but I know if I was to wake up at 6am one day and just tell my husband that I'm going to the gym, I have a feeling like he would just leave the house. He would be like, I'm about to like die today. Like This bitch has never voluntarily woken up at 6am, let alone to go exercise. Like, I'm about to die. This is about to be my last breath. Like, something is off. But for Michael and Dahlia, this was a regular thing. Like, the two of them would exercise together a lot. And a lot of times they would go to this gym early in the morning, especially Michael, as we're going to talk about later, because he used to be addicted to certain things and used to kind of lead life of crime as well. So getting into a routine was very important, more to Michael than to Dahlia. But both of them would kind of get the gym out of their way early in the morning, and then they would do their work and continue with their day. Now, as she's in the gym, Mike is kind of awake, like he got woken up as Dahlia was leaving, but you know, he was still in bed, having what he would probably consider a lie-in. And this is when the police knocks on his door. And we ended up telling him what we were there for. You have to come with us, your wife's gonna have you killed today. Clearly, this just hits him like a ton of bricks. I mean, He literally takes a step back. We ended up taking him out of the house and driving him straight to the Point Beach Police Department. They bring Mike into the police department and they're just telling him, like, hey, listen, so we have reasons to believe that your wife tried to kill you. They show him bits and pieces of this video that was recorded on a hidden camera with a supposed hitman who was actually one of the undercover police officers. And as this is happening, at their house, they are staging a crime scene. After this crime scene is staged, they put like shit ton of yellow tape. They barricade this area with the cars as if this was legitimate crime scene so that nobody enters the property. They put yellow tape. It just seems like as if the Forensics are already on the spot, and a ton of police officers are there. And this is when they decide to finally give Dahlia a call. Sergeant Ramsey, can I help you? Is this Mr. Bilotti, please? He intentionally pronounces her name wrong to throw her off. Once he got her on the phone, told her that something had happened and we needed her to come to the house. They needed to break some news to her. No, ma'am, I need to talk to you. Ma'am, I'll tell you everything you need to know when you get here. As Dahlia approaches, she sees what's really a crime scene. She sees police, uh, tape, blocked off. So the condo is surrounded by police cars. There's a crime scene van. There's crime scene tape. Her apartment's roped off with the tape. The front door to the townhouse is wide open with black fingerprint dust everywhere. Dolly arrives from LA Fitness from going to the gym and she rushes up. Dolly Tepolito doesn't know she's being set up right now. A really buff police sergeant tells her, your husband has been murdered. Is your husband Michael? Okay, I'm sorry to tell you, ma'am. He's been killed. Before the words are even out of his mouth, she starts crying. And he even hugs her and she figures she's got them. 
wrapped around her finger just like all these other men. And little does she know, her world is about to come crashing down. I'll tell you, man, he's been killed. Going into his arms. She's wailing. So as you have picked up from that video, she starts crying before the cop tells her the word killed even. And then she doesn't even ask like, oh, okay, how was he killed? You know, like the normal typical question a non-guilty person would ask, like, how was he killed? How many people? Did you arrest them? Did you get them? Where is his body now? Can I see his body? No, she doesn't ask any of that. So she practiced the crying part, but didn't really practice much on that. She asks about their dogs. And Lisa, if you are listening to this now and are like, oh yeah, that makes complete sense, you are a dog person. And you kind of need to realize if your dog was starving, they would eat you. You you understand that, right? Like, I understand that dog people are really attached to their dogs, but sometimes the lack of attachment to humans that they have at the same time is so scary to me. They put her in the police car and bring her to the police station just to interrogate her. Like, is there anybody that would want to do something like this to Michael? And they tell her how her timing for the gym that morning was just really great. He has been shot twice. They would have definitely killed her. So as they place her into this interrogation room, you would have thought for somebody that actually planned all of this, that practiced like crying on command and all of that, that she would have thought like what questions they are going to ask. But it appears that she didn't. Because they ask about Michael, like, is there anybody that would want to do this to Michael? And as a concerned wife, I have a feeling you kind of got to start off with, like, their positive personality traits. And then, yes, if he was into something shady, give those details to the police. But Dahlia straight up offers all of Michael's negative traits and those only. The police are treating her like a grieving widow. They're doing their investigation into who would want to kill her husband. Listen, is there anybody that you know that you think would want to kill your husband? This is on probation. For what? For stock fraud. Stock fraud? And in fact, she tries to steer the investigation to the victims that Mike had previously scammed money from. And you spent time in prison? How much? Um, two years in prison and five years on probation, going on to six years. Oh, my God. And what was that for? It was for taking money. It was, like, he explained, like, boiler room, kind of, where they would take money from people. She tells them that he had been in prison before for fraud, that he was on probation, and that he still owed restitution, almost $200,000, to several victims. He's been trying to get off probation, and it's just been nothing but problems the whole time that he's been trying to get off. People weren't happy that he was getting off probation because it's a lot of money he's got to pay back. She tells them that Mike was just about to get off on probation early, and the people that he had scammed money from were very angry and upset about this. Well, when you say people, who are you talking about? People that were involved with him before? Or? A little bit of everything. He's constantly running into a lot of the guys that he was on probation with. It was a lot of money. It was $191,000 that he had to pay back. He's got all these sketchy characters from his past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're the ones. I guess somehow when he went away, some guys didn't go away. 
they left you the country. You mean when went to prison? Right. Okay. They left the country. And so somehow he was dealing with some of those guys because they thought that he owed them and I don't know. She gave very vague details about you know, maybe people that could have been angry with him. She didn't provide law enforcement with much information at all. Go ahead and ask him if you know any names, and we can run these guys down and see what they know. I don't know if the one guy that I'm telling you about, mm -hmm. Pasquale, if he also went away or if he didn't. She starts to kind of give names and, and tell them that there are possibilities of people that maybe had wanted to see Mike dead. Is it Pasquale or Pasquale? Pasquale. Then Dahlia starts spilling some of Mike's other secrets, like his substance abuse issues. He's recovering alcoholic. Dahlia tells detectives that her husband, Mike, struggled with demons, alcohol, and drugs. And so with him, it's very important to be like on a schedule and, you yeah. know what I mean, like have a system and very organized with everything. Get up every day, go to the gym, go to Starbucks. He would go to AA meetings. He felt was so important to keep regimented. He did that to make sure that he stayed sober. And in fact, Mike would have otherwise been at the gym with Dahlia, except he was recovering from liposuction surgery. We were supposed to go to the gym. Oh, both of you were supposed to go? He, he had like two blood handles removed from here. And so he was laid up. He couldn't exercise. He couldn't go to the gym. We haven't gone since the surgery, but every morning, 5 a.m., we're both at the gym. You're lucky. What? You're lucky you went to the gym. Uh, I don't know if you know, he was shot. He was shot twice. And I want you to know all this. Do you know um, this? Not exactly. I mean, they told me he was shot. He was found in the bedroom. He was shot twice in the head. She brought up every negative detail of his life. Do you see what I mean? There is the extent that I would understand, like you have to mention sketchy characters, but then she doesn't offer names. She's super vague about it, and then just volunteers up more negative information that doesn't really mean anything in this case. It doesn't really tell them who would have done this, it just kind of reflects negatively on Mike. After the police officer is done with his charade, they tell her that, yeah, he was actually shot twice, she was lucky to actually be in the gym. Well, then they bring in this hitman, like the man that they have recorded her, have the conversation with, with that hidden camera in the car that we're going to speak about later. But this hitman, as I mentioned, was the undercover police officer. And he walks in, and Dahlia just says that she has never seen this man in her life. She has no idea who this man is, and they clearly roughened up this guy and put him in handcuffs. And she just doesn't have no empathy, no remorse that this person, who is an apparent hitman, is being arrested because of her. Inside, I was kind of laughing because I knew that I spent a good 25 minutes talking to her and hearing her saying that she's never met me was uh, pretty, pretty shocking. And then the detective all of a sudden goes from being the grandfatherly figure that he had been into more of a aggressive. You're going to jail today for solicitation of murder. You're under arrest. That's an undercover police officer. We filmed everything that you did. Recorded everything that you did. You're going to jail for solicitation of first degree murder of your husband. 
I didn't do anything. Did you hear what I just told you? I heard what you said, but I didn't. Everything, listen to me. Everything has been recorded. You were photographed in the convertible when you sat in this car in the front of CBS. What do you want to do? I don't think for a second that she thought that investigators in the interrogation room were going to turn on her. Listen to me. I didn't do anything. You're going to jail. I didn't do anything. Please, I didn't do anything. Can you talk about that moment when you realized the tables were turned? I panicked. I was just completely frozen, and I, I couldn't move. I couldn't really process and digest everything that was going on. And this isn't everything. Once they tell her that she is going to jail, they also reveal the truth to her. They bring in Michael, showing that he is alive and well. They say, guess what? He's alive. He's alive. Come here, please. Come here. Mike, come here, please. Come here. Three words to describe Diane. Liar, liar, liar. That liar, liar, liar line is just pure gold. It's just the highlight of this whole freaking case. In the matter of hours after she was arrested, the video showing Dahlia orchestrating everything has been released to the public. Liar on him. And a few seconds later, she begins talking about getting her husband killed. There's no small talk. Muhammad and Dahlia launch right into a secretly recorded conversation detailing Dahlia's murderous intentions. At first, it seems like her motive might be Mike's money. Dahlia has no idea that every word coming out of her mouth is being caught on camera. This is where he actually says he was going to introduce her to a hitman. I know him, you know, like, he's good at it. We realized that this guy was credible. But now, how am I supposed to know what day he's going to do it? We were shocked how easily she talked about getting her husband killed. He might tell you, oh, like, to get out of town or something for a day. I'm not going out of town. You even hear during the conversation her talk about no one would ever believe that she could be capable of murder. His mom is not going to get suspicious of you or anything like Why that. Why me? No one that, you know, nobody's going to be able to point a finger at me. She ended up bringing $1,200 in cash. She believed that that money was going to be given to the hitman to buy a gun. Yeah, She also bought two pictures. I have a picture of her right now. You're sure everything else is okay? Yeah. You're sure, sure. Yo, what more sure can you want? You're planning a murder. Come on, stop, yo. She's made a down payment on death. And now Dahlia DiPolito is about to come face to face with the assassin. But little does she know, she's walking into a trap. Now from prison, she has the freaking audacity to actually call Mike to try to get him to get her a lawyer. Like, to call the guy that she just attempted to murder. The police actually saved to tell him, no, he shouldn't trust the police, he should trust her. Like, she never would have done this. Like, can he get her a lawyer, please? So, it's time to speak about who are Dahlia and Mike, and how did we get here in the first place? So, let's speak about their background. And let's start off with Dahlia. 
When Dahlia was born, her family lived in New York, but then they moved to Boynton Beach in Florida when she was only 13 years old. Dahlia was the oldest of three siblings, and her mom worked for a health insurance company, and her dad was a server at restaurants. And she actually went to Catholic school as a child, but then, when she was about 17, her parents were going through a divorce. And this kind of upset her enough to just make an abrupt decision, which will become very much like one of her most prevalent personality traits, let's call it that. So this day, when she realized her parents are getting divorced, she actually kicked off and flew to JFK airport from Miami. And then her family kind of reported her missing because she was still underage and because they didn't know where the fuck she was and why did she just kick off abruptly. So luckily on this occasion, they just found her at the airport when she landed and they returned her home. Then, when Dahlia was only 19 years old, she started off her career as an escort. And Dahlia was doing a few things. I watched a really good video, obviously done by Stephanie Harlow on this case. She's insanely detailed. But the way that I picture Dahlia working as an escort was sort of like what you would see in Molly's game. Obviously, that wasn't escorting, that was like gambling. But how Molly would hire the girls to be at a bar. So she would set up these girls on dates and then would take a commission. So she was sort of like a madam, like a pimp to those girls. And to cover all of that up, she would have a massage parlor and also she would do it online through Craigslist or sugardaddy.com. Soon this business was booming and Dahlia realized she could use her own personality traits and also because she was hiring the girls that she could trust, she started offering the girlfriend experience. The girlfriend experience, if you are not familiar, you would go on Craigslist, on sugardaddy.com, on any of these websites and when, I don't know, your family would be pressuring you to show up with a girlfriend at a wedding, at a funeral, wherever. Or let's say you're a high-profile businessman, you need a girl to show up to events with you. Or you are just lonely and you need somebody to pretend to listen to you and to your troubles and you don't want to invest in therapy, but rather you want somebody to act as your girlfriend. Well, Dahlia was offering girlfriend experience herself and also her girls were in the same business. You would think this is a lot of somebody's plate at the age of 19, but this is also when she met another guy named Mike. So this guy she met at a bar, and Dahlia was actually with her whole family at the time, just like having dinner and drinks. And Mike approached, and he bought them all a drink in order to speak to her, in order to get to know Dahlia better. Now, this is creepy in itself, because this guy was 10 years older than her, and because he was married with a child at the time. So... The marriage was on the rocks, as he told Dahlia, and he was actually living in the basement of their own house. So he was just staying there because of the kid. Now, I don't think this is the right time to have this freaking argument, but I put it in the damn script. So Rachel and Ross, were they on a break? Yes or no? I say yes, because he literally said, we're going on a break, and then... He made out with that girl or whatever. I didn't watch Friends in a while. But listen, 
it was on a break. If it happens on a break and you claim that it is a break, then that means that they were on a fucking break. <laughs> you know, common sense. But hey, I'm happy to hear otherwise politely in the comments. Maybe I'm missing out on the whole plot. Back to our story. This first Mike is kind of living with Dahlia. Well, he is like in her flat so that he doesn't have to kind of live in the basement. But one day Dahlia goes to visit her family and she returns and she tells Mike to pack up his shit because she met another man. So this is where Dahlia was when she met Michael. She was running successful business at a very young age and this business in particular, combined with her personality traits, meant that she knew what men wanted. And she knew how to manipulate situations in order to get things out of them and, most importantly, to make profit. We now meet Michael DiPolito. So, what point in his life was he at when he met Dahlia? Well, he actually had a really rough childhood. Both of his parents were absent drug addicts, and some of his family members were even involved in gang activity. So he, of course, because of this, because of how they were living, started drinking when he was only 10, and he started selling weed soon after that. And as you're probably getting the vibe from everything that I mentioned about Michael at the beginning of this video, or just the liar, liar, liar line, Mike was really gullible. That's probably like the understatement of the day. But he just was super naive, but was also like a really good guy. Just a really good sport, really generous from the young age. And he just wanted a better life for himself. Which also meant that he wasn't the best at selling weed. Because he would sell drugs at a lower price and then wouldn't really chase people to pay him either. Eventually, due to this, he would get caught for selling weed and he would go to juvie, like before he was 18. But then once he was out, he would get normal jobs. But he kind of just kept going back to this cycle. And it didn't help that the girls that he would usually be dating would kind of be using him for a drug supply. So he dated this girl who was kind of hooked on ecstasy. And here Mike, just like Dahlia did, started tapping into his skills. And he realized something that he did really well was that he was a natural-born salesman. So he kind of ran a bit of a Wolf of Wall Street operation where he would scam people out of money and then they would kind of pick up their stuff, leave that office, find a different office space and then continue scamming. I just find that insanely interesting, that they both had the set of skills that they learned how to exploit from a really early age, and that had they done something great with both of those sets of skills, they would have probably never met. But hey, what do you expect when Molly's game meets freaking Wolf of Wall Street? That would be a sick movie. Just imagine all of the plots. Like, you would need to focus. It would be like freaking Inception. You would need to focus, like, for an hour and a half. It's just such a pain. <laughs> Listen, let's just all go watch, like, the whole Fast and Furious saga. You don't have to focus for a single second. The plot is just so non-existent. It's like, it's about family. And then, like, nine movies later, you're like, okay, but, like, for reals? <laughs> Anything else to add? No, it's about family. And then you watch like a movie for 90 fucking minutes and nothing happens. They just drive cars and invent siblings. Okay. <laughs> Are you done? Are you done? Can you continue with a fucking story? 
I'm also re-listening to Hunger Games, so I have not had a reality check in a very long time. <laughs> I live in fictional worlds, and I like it that way. Cool. Back to the story of the day. This Wolf of Wall Street operation brought Michael a few hundred thousand dollars, but it also brought him a jail sentence because he was eventually found out. And at the time that he went to jail, he had actually a ride-or-die girlfriend called Maria. So now he did spend a couple of years in prison. And when he was 32, he gets out and they tell him he needs to spend 28 years on probation and also pay the restitution money to everybody that he stole the money from. This girlfriend, Maria, actually stuck with him, so the two of them got married, they were living nicely, Mike still tapped into his skills, but this time he started a legit online marketing company, and he just wanted to stay straight this time and not use drugs. And this is when he started following a routine. So he would get up early in the morning, go to the gym, then he would work, and then spend the time after work with Maria living like a completely normal life, following a routine. But as it often happens with addictions, he had to find a way to feed his addiction elsewhere. So he didn't want to use drugs. So he kind of turned to the escorts websites. And this is the point when these two lives would clash. Because one day he was just searching this escorts website, he would just check them, like he would sort of sometimes maybe chat with these women, but he never made plans to meet any of them. Until one day this woman starts chatting with him. She said she was only in town for the weekend, so Mike here decides to actually meet this woman. And this woman just happens to be Dahlia DiPolito. So the two of them have amazing sex according to all sources. And Mike didn't really think of this as an affair. He thought of it as a one-off situation. They're gonna get a hotel room, he's gonna get it out of his system, and then this addiction fix will be fed so he can move on with his life, go back to his marriage, and just continue with his routine. Here, let's all tap for a second into our whole years, months, weeks, days, whichever it is. Seems it's a bit of a personal story, Maya. That you started off with the word years, but hey, so let's tap into our hoeing experience, right? If this was just a fling, both of you consider it just to be a one night stand, well, then you kind of pick up your shit in the morning or maybe even after you're done doing it and you get out of the door. You never hear from this person again. What Dahlia did was after the night of passion, the next morning, she woke up next to Michael and she switched on her girlfriend experience. The two of them were chatting, she was really natural, and she said, ah, you know, I might actually be staying in town for a few days longer than I intended to. We could maybe see each other again if you are up for it. And Mike was like, okay, sure. This is when everything starts moving fast. Like, we are talking sometimes days, because this relationship switches from being business, being that he hired her as an escort, to personal, within a couple of days, within that next week. And Michael, being the naive soul that he was, really wasn't worried about Dahlia being a gold digger, because she ran successful business of hers, like she was loaded in money because she has been doing it since she was 19, 
So he really just wasn't worried about that. And unfortunately, he also wasn't worrying about his wife and how this woman that literally waited for him to get out of prison would react because within days he leaves Maria. And he doesn't tell her why he's leaving her. He doesn't tell her like it's for an escort, a different woman. But she sort of catches him at the florist buying flowers for Dahlia. And she's like, listen, I don't care that I caught you in a lie. Like, yes, I'm pissed off that you clearly cheated on me and are ending our relationship over like a fling that happened for a couple of nights. But also, I just want to tell you, Michael, like something is off. Like, this just doesn't seem right. Why the fuck would a successful escort suddenly start off a relationship with you? Like, just be careful. And Michael is sort of brushing it off. It's like, oh, of course, she's jealous. Like, she's my now ex-wife. Like, yeah, of course, I'll be careful, Maria. Within a month, Dahlia and Michael are living together. And they're living in this new house that he is renting. So... Red flags were present all throughout this story. I'm not even going to point them out because from this point on, I would be pointing it out after literally every single line that I was to read off this script. But possibly one of the biggest red flags is what happens next. So Michael takes Dahlia's whole family out for dinner and while they were sitting there just eating their food, there is this man that is kind of creepily standing behind her with flowers. And Dahlia just brushes it off in front of Michael and a friend. And she takes this man out, chats with him for a while, and then manages to convince Michael after this dinner that this is just her ex trying to get her back. Mike never really looked into this, and for him, he still sees Dahlia as somebody who has her own money and isn't there to really use him. Like, during the first few months, she actually had breast surgery, she paid for it, they would go out to these different restaurants, and Dahlia would pay for food, so money never seemed like an issue here. The facade kind of started falling apart when Michael had to go to Las Vegas for his work trip. And he, because he's still on parole, if you remember, has to clear this trip with his parole officer. And she here gets really pissed. Like, this is just so inconvenient. They could have already been in Las Vegas. Like, they could have already traveled there. It's just so inconvenient that he's on this parole and that she has to wait now. And he's like, this is my work trip. Like, what the fuck? But this is when he actually breaks off with her after this work trip. Because even him noticed that something was off. Like, he knew how hard he worked to stay away from different addictions, how hard he's working to gain the restitution money to pay off the parole so he doesn't have to be on it for 28 years. And he just wants to do things by the book. And she clearly doesn't understand that, doesn't appreciate it. So he breaks off with Dahlia. And she just seemed stunned. She didn't really have much of a reaction. And she just sort of left and said, nobody ever broke off with me before. Few weeks after this breakup, Dahlia actually invites Mike to meet for a coffee, sort of to find closure. Which, as somebody who has pulled this stunt before, I can tell you this is such bullshit. Like, anytime you tell somebody you want to find closure, you wanna find closure with them. Let's just call it that. You want to be closed off within them sheets with that person. 
Okay, so they meet for coffee, and this was her way to manipulate the situation, because they're just gonna talk, they're just gonna find closure. And in the most ridiculous twist of events, during their chat this time, the question just came to Michael, and he asked Dahlia, will she marry him? Dahlia, of course, is super emotional. She says yes, like this was her plan all along. But he still has to finalize the divorce with Maria. And as soon as he does, Dahlia and Michael get married, five days after his divorce is finalized. As now she is a married woman, she kind of had to leave her escort business behind. And at this point, Dahlia was working as an estate agent, and it just so happened that she was an estate agent for their own house, which basically meant that she was getting a commission from Michael, and also that she was decorating this house using his rent money. This is when it actually occurs to Dahlia, like how has this not even crossed her mind before? She had this friend that actually told her if Mike paid up the restitution money, he would actually be done with his probation. So all of those 28 years wouldn't really count. She manages to convince him in order for the police not to get suspicious about how Michael actually has these huge funds of money to pay up for this restitution. She convinces him to sort of deposit small funds of money into her bank account until the funds reach 100k, and then she's going to meet him with the $80,000, and then with all of this money, he can go to the lawyer, pay up for his restitution. Dahlia, of course, took care of finding a lawyer herself, and then one day they met up with this lawyer, Dahlia told him that the wire transfer took place, and that he should be paying this money off to the courts, like, is my husband off parole now? And the lawyer just said, no, the transfer never reached me. So Michael doesn't know who to trust here. Dahlia is here convincing him that the wire transfer definitely went through. So the lawyer must have nicked their money now. What are they going to do now? Like this was 180k. This isn't just like small change. Around that same time, Mark's probation officer starts making what appears to everybody at first to be just these surprise visits. He would make a home visit saying that they got an anonymous tip about Mike illegally selling steroids. And Mike was at this point cooperative, but also this was stressing him out, as well as the whole restitution situation and the lawyer not having received the money. This isn't just like petty change we're talking about, it's $190,000. So his loving wife, Dahlia, one day suggests that they should go to a hotel for a night to take their mind off things. And so they do. But at the hotel, just as Mike is coming back from the gym, the police again stop them and they ask to search his vehicle. So Mike allows it, but he kind of tells the police, hey, listen, you've kind of been on my case, like you know, can we get some more details on this anonymous caller? Because it kind of seems like somebody's really trying to set me up. Like, you won't find anything, but I'm scared that one day you will. And it won't even be because I've done something wrong, but it's rather somebody's trying to set me up desperately. The police here doesn't find anything, and Mike kind of places this event like in the back of his brain, like they have great time at the hotel. 
And as he came back, returning to his life, he needs to speak to the lawyer again. But he goes to the AA meeting. And as he's going to this regular AA meeting that he attends every week, he stops at the petrol station. And as he opens the car tank, he sees like a small stash of drugs in his car tank. So insinuating that this is what the police has been looking for when they stopped him at the hotel. And Mike kind of freaks out, he disposes of that, but he realizes he needs to be more careful, like somebody is clearly trying to set him up now. As this is happening, he's also communicating with a lawyer, and the lawyer tells him, listen, the money just isn't here. Like, I don't want to say anything, but I think you kind of need to speak with your wife, because, sorry, the wire transfers just don't take this amount of time. So Mike confronts Dahlia, and she says she needs to come clean, okay? Which, of course, means she's just going to try to sell him another lie while making him think, like, oh, she's finally going to say the truth and, like, take this burden off her chest. So Dahlia's truth here is that she lost the money falling for a scam, but she will pay him back as soon as she gets the commissions from her real estate business. I just find it a next level that she chose what basically his previous job was that he was doing on the sly, which was technically taking money from other people, and that she uses that to build report here, that this was her lie in this situation. Like, her manipulation really went to the next level. Now, a few days after this, at a car park, again, the police approaches Mike, and they said, hey, there's been an anonymous tip. And Mike is just fed up, he's like, I mean, you guys know the situation by now, like, go ahead, search the car, but, like, this is really becoming insane, somebody's clearly trying to set me up. This time, though, the police finds a gram of coke in his car tire, and he starts sobbing, he starts crying, he's like, I've been set up, like, it's a, it's a gram of coke, like, why the fuck would I be hiding a gram of coke in a tire? Like, who is doing this to me? The police kind of actually felt sorry for Mike. Like, they understood themselves. Like, he can't just sell a gram of coke. And also, exactly what he was saying. Why would it be in his tire? So, they kind of let him go off with a warning and tell him, well, kind of investigate. And tell him to kind of look into his life and who would really want to set him up. And at this point, finally, a switch kind of goes off in in Mike's head. Suddenly, he plays, like, all of these flashbacks. Like, he lived his life completely normal. He was on probation. He was on a good pathway to pay up this restitution and to maybe get off the probation earlier. When did everything change? And he realizes the one common thread is Dahlia. Like, everything changed for the worse once Dahlia entered his life. Now he's almost in debt, the police is approaching him for these random searches. As naive as Mike was, he's thinking these must be related. But every time when he tries to face Dahlia, she just gets more and more irrational. On one occasion, he starts chatting with her in the car, and she just starts driving speedily. She just drives manically, so finally he tries to de-escalate the situation, tells her it's fine, like we won't talk about it. And then she sort of starts driving the normal speed. 
Then she appears at the lawyer's office and brings in the check for 190000 So you're like, okay, maybe she wasn't lying. Maybe she has actually been scammed, as she said all this time. But then in this office, she makes this whole scene and she starts crying, saying that she actually can't trust him when he can't trust her. So that she wants the 90000 back, and that she doesn't want to invest in him any longer. So she kind of hands this check to the lawyer and says, cool, like you cash this out, but Mike, I need the 90 k back. And Mike is like, okay, no problem. You're going to have your 90 k back. I want my 100 k back. Like, logical conclusion. Like, you can't trust me. I can't trust you. Fuck it. This marriage is going to shit. Just give me my money back. But then... When Dahlia leaves the office, the lawyer looks at that check and realizes the check is actually for $190. No K, no free zeros at the end of that number. And not just that, but it's not in Dahlia's name at all. It's in the name of the guy called Eric. And Michael now needs to negotiate with a third party. Mike starts negotiating with Eric. And Eric apparently was the person who also invested in Dahlia's business. And once it was found out that this business where Dahlia was investing in was a scam, well, he lost as well. So he saw in Michael the opportunity to make his cut, to make a commission. So he wants the money that he is owed and also the collateral on their house, on Dahlia and Michael's house. So in the end, for me to cut this long ass story short, the 90k that Mike invested became 240k because now he had to give another $50,000 to Eric to even see some of that money back. Eric managed to convince Mike to fall into what is commonly known as the Spanish prisoner con. You have probably received something of the sort in your email. Obviously, it has changed through centuries. So when it originated at the beginning of the 20th century, it was the advance fee fraud in which a con artist would convince its mark that they are in a correspondence with a wealthy aristocrat who is being held in a Spanish prison under a false identity. This con today, you have probably seen whether it landed in your junk or scam email or maybe in your main inbox. You will get an email from this person saying they are royalty from this XYZ country. And they would say that either they want to invest in you or that you are part of the lineage and as such you are actually owed this large sum of money. They would make you feel special And then you would share your bank details with them, and instead of the money going in, well, the money would get out. So Eric was operating that kind of scheme. Mike actually went to the bank with Eric, giving Eric the promised commission of $50,000 for Eric to then fill up the bags with $190,000 that Mike would then bring to the lawyer, pay up for his restitution, and he is going to be a free man. Once this happens, Eric, of course, invents something like, yeah, Mike, like, I will meet you at this XYZ location, and he disappears forever. And if you're anything like me, you're wondering, well, why didn't Mike investigate into this? Why didn't he hire his own lawyer? Why didn't he, well, get rid of Dahlia to begin with? Why didn't he go to the police to investigate this matter? And I think you need to remember how fast this is happening. 
If you remember from the beginning of the story, when the supposed hit happened, Dahlia and Mike were only married for just about six months. So this is all happening within like spans of weeks. So Mike still would first like to confront Dahlia, get the actual truth, the information out of her, and he still is gullible. He still thinks like this has nothing to do with her. This guy scammed both of us. One day he again finds the time to confront her, and this time she tells him that she is pregnant. And having this in mind, Mike forgets about everything. Like, fuck the dad, like, we'll forget about the money. There's a prospect of a baby coming along now. So he wants to be super involved, he's extra excited about this, like, finally things are back on track. But of course, every time that he wants to go for an appointment with Alia, well, those kind of appointments get cancelled last minute. She is apparently, though, reading all of these baby books, she is going to marriage counseling with Mike and trying to really work on this. But she has one condition, they should never talk about the money. Like, this woman is treating it as if it was like a one pound coin. Like, yeah, you just got this for nothing because you can't buy fucking shit with a one pound coin. You can buy like a can of Coke, maybe. She's just like, I just really don't want you to talk about money. It's like such a big hassle for me. If you could just forget that I literally robbed you of a quarter of a million dollars, that would be really epic for me. Like, that would really make my fucking day. We are now only a few weeks away from that day in April when the police approached Dahlia in front of her house. Mike has had liposuction for his love handles, and Dahlia is this amazing wife that she is. She's treating him. She would go to the gym early in the morning, and then on her way back, she would bring him Starbucks, which was Mike's routine to begin with. And on this time, she brought him this iced chai latte, and Mike took only a sip of it, and he just spat it out. He just said this tastes disgusting, like what is in this? And even from that one sip, Mike ended up having mouth ulcers, it messed up with his stomach for days, and he was also supposed to be on bed rest. And that is because there was some antifreeze in that chai latte, like had he drunk all of it, he would have probably been dead. But this is now getting like sadistic. This is just pure freaking sadism at this point, because he's at the bed rest and now needs to basically spend like all of his time struggling to go to the toilet. After he recovers a bit, he still doesn't go to the gym as often after this operation, but one day she suggests that they go together. And It just so happens that on this particular day, Mike gets out of the gym and finds an extortion letter on his windshield. Somebody is asking for $40,000 and it says, don't tell your wife. I will tell you that all that's happening to you has happened to you. Yeah, make it make sense, because nothing really makes sense in this case up until this point. But Dahlia offers to be the person to ring the number on this extortion note letter. Like, yeah, let's not ignore it. No, let's engage into this. There's a number. You know when people are on the street for cheaps advertising like a massage parlor or whatnot, and you can tear apart the number to call? This is Dahlia in this situation. She's like, somebody's trying to extort us. We must respect them and give them some money. And Mike is there like, 
yes, that is exactly what we need to do. Like, fuck me, man. So Dahlia rings this person, and apparently, also, she doesn't use a speakerphone or anything of that sort, nope. She tells Mike later that she just spoke to a woman and that she gave her the address that they need to appear with the money. So the two of them agree, okay, no, nobody's going to extort this family any longer. We are not going to obviously go to hand over the money, but let us just drive to that point in a car and sort of observe what happens. Like, maybe we find out who is behind all of this. Of course, nothing happens, because the person behind all of this is sitting with him in that car. At this point, this is psychologically messing up with Mike. He would later say to the police that he just wished the person would just get it over with. Like, just tell me what you actually want, because you clearly either want me back in jail, or you want to extort me, or all of it. Just like, what is the end goal here? Just tell me so that we can fucking get it over with. Dahlia is not done yet, because as if all of this wasn't enough, she's now thinking, okay, we do need a new lawyer, right? And I have this judge friend, and this man spoke to me about administrative probation. This is apparently for low offenses, and you can apply to only correspond with probation officers, so it's just kind of postal. They don't ever have to come to visit you which means they don't have to monitor you, you know, you don't have to, like, have everything approved, like, we can travel, we can live our lives. And only, again, had Mike used Google to just figure this out, he would have realized that this is only possible if you served up half of your probation already, which, if you remember, he has, like, 28 years to serve, so definitely not the case. This fake lawyer that Dahlia found somewhere. Where does she find these fucking dodgy characters? Fuck me if I know. I I just wish to know in this story, like, what did her days look like? Just like walk me. Day in a life. When she wakes up, she goes to the gym. Okay, that's the only part of her days that we actually know of. Like, later, walk me through it. Like, you know, after 8pm, whatever. What, What do you do with your day, Dahlia? Because that still just blows my mind. Like, where is she that he doesn't notice that she knows all of these dodge-ass characters. This fake lawyer tells Mike because of that restitution, they might want to seize your house. So, do you have anybody that you trust that you can transfer this house to? And Mike transfers the title to Dahlia. With this case, it is so hard to pinpoint just the point of no return, but I would say this is pretty much it, because Mohammed enters the scene. Well, I say that because Mohammed was actually in the picture for quite some time. Remember the weekend that Dahlia met Mike in Florida? Well, Mohammed was still sort of seeing Dahlia. The two of them were kind of intimate friends, he would say, for about four years. So they were like on and off, fuck buddy kind of situation. Until they parted ways, and next time he sees Dahlia, she tells him a story that she's in an unhappy marriage with an abusive guy who sold drugs and had a steroid habit, and she was actually afraid for her life. Now, to connect all of the dots for you, Mohammed was in the picture when the petrol station incident with the police happened. She used the money that she stole from Mike in the first place to buy Mohammed a car. 
She told him she stole it from the restitution money and also asked him if he could provide her with a fake wire transfer receipt. Mohammed was aware of quite a few things, but he just never knew the extent that this was going to, because she never asked him to do something extreme. And also, well, she told him different set of lies. She told him that she's in an unhappy, abusive marriage with a guy who is a drug dealer and is a dodgy character. So nothing would prepare Mohammed for the day when Dahlia goes to visit him in this shop where Mohammed was working. After all of these failed attempts that at first started with an intention to put Mike back in prison, to extort him before he goes back to prison so that she is provided for, and then later escalated basically as an attempt on his life before she even walks in to ask Muhammad what she wants to ask him, she encounters this random street gang. Like, they're right in front of the store. And Dahlia, like a fucking freak. And Dahlia, as if she watched this in a freaking movie or some shit, like, I can't believe some of this story is real. She starts negotiating with this street gang. She's asking them, like, can you get rid of my husband? Like, uh, can I... Like, what would be the rate for that? She didn't come with a prepared rate in her head. Nope. She's negotiating with them. Then some of these gang members get in her car for her to basically show them where they live. So that they sort of scout the area, tell her, you know, how much money something like that would cost and see basically the risk level. And Mohammed is just in his store looking at this take place outside and he's like, that's it. Dahlia is done for. She literally entered into her own car to go to her own house with the gang members that she just met on the day. He's like, I mean, might as well sign off her death sentence. Like, they have her license plate, they know the model of her car, they know how she looks like, like she's dead, like she ain't coming back. But she does. And even these gang members took a look at the apartment complex where they were living, and they said there were too many motion sensors, too many cameras. Like, we are not going to jail because you want somebody killed in here. Which is the peak of this story. Even the street gang had standards, but Dahlia didn't. She was just like, nope, I'm on a mission here. I'm getting my husband killed. So now she actually walks into this store and talks to Mohammed. Luckily for Mike, Mohammed decides to tip off the police. But at first, he didn't have, like, their address. He doesn't even have her full name. Like, he doesn't have his full name. So the police is kind of hesitant. They're, like, suspicious. But they're also aware of all of these tip-offs that Mike has been receiving. So they're thinking there might be something in this. So they convinced Mohammed to work with an undercover agent, the guy that we saw at the beginning of the video, to get the proof that they need. This recording that the police department has since released to the public shows Dahlia plotting the crime with Mohammed. She pays him up front. He tells her that the hitman wants $7,000 for the job and around 1200 deposit. And then we see that exchange of the deposit, and then in the second conversation, where the cameras were also put in a car, we see her exchange with this supposed hitman. There's no small talk. Mohammed and Dahlia launch right into a secretly recorded conversation detailing Dahlia's murderous intentions. At first, it seems like her motive might be Mike's money. Honestly, you don't worry about 
Delia has no idea that every word coming out of her mouth is being caught on camera. Okay, well, I'm trying to say he's okay. This guy's a professional. It's not what he does is get it done. That's it. Right. This is where he actually says he was going to introduce her to a hitman. I know him. You know, like, he's good at it. We realized that this guy was credible. But now, how am I supposed to know what day he's going to do it? We were shocked how easily she talked about getting her husband killed. He might tell you all type to get out of town or something for a day. I'm not going out of town. You even hear during the conversation her talk about no one would ever believe that she could be capable of murder. His mom is not going to keep suspicious of you or anything like that. Why me? You know, nobody's going to be able to point a finger at me. She ended up bringing $1,200 in cash. She believed that that money was going to be given to the hitman to buy a gun. Yeah, she also bought two pictures. I have a picture of him right now. Are you yeah. sure everything else is okay? Yeah. You're sure, sure. Yo, what more sure can you want? You're planning a murder. Come on. Stop, yo. She's made a down payment on death. Mohammed was really the key part of this investigation because, as you could hear, he got her to say all the right things, but he also offered the crucial thing, the option for her to back out, and she never does. And I'd like to know what you think on this particular thing, but I'm not sure she was 100% lying when she said that money wasn't the motive. Like, I think definitely partially money was the motive, especially because she already, like, stole a quarter of a mil from her husband. But I think with criminals that we usually speak about that kind of switch their mind from, like, one day to another, or, you know, they haven't been really associated with, like, criminal activity and then switch to crime... The trigger is usually sometimes more immediate. Mike and Dahlia were supposed to go to this baseball game with Mike's friends, and the friend's wife would have been there. And this wife was, at the time, four months pregnant. And Dahlia was supposed to be four months pregnant as well. But of course, Dahlia was wearing like these tight clothes and just pretending like the stomach doesn't grow in the second trimester. She might have come to the realization that not only she's about to be discovered during this baseball game, but also she spoke to like an actual real lawyer who told her that this house that Mike transferred to her, well, she can't claim it until he's dead. And due to this, there is a real sense of urgency once she meets this supposed hitman who is the undercover cop, and she says to him that she wants this to happen this week. She parked and got into the car, and she said, hey. Hey. Dahlia shows up to the meeting with Witty, and she's wearing a cute little sundress She's almost flirtatious with him in the car. I wanted to make sure that she caught my attention in my eyes. The way she was dressed, pretty much, I'm like, okay, you know, she wants to show off her body. So, you know, I have to give her a compliment. I told her, hey, you know, you look good. She clearly thought she was talking to a hitman, and to her, this was something that had to be done. Well, that's up to you. We were shocked how easily she talked about getting her husband killed. She gave me uh, definitely a sense of urgency. Uh, you cannot wait to make it happen. If you're going to make it happen, you have to make it happen this week. I'll give you a quick breakdown. 
We talked about money, uh, how much money she's going to pay me. Uh, at one point, she said, well, I thought that, I'll, you know, I already gave you $200. So where it went to buy my, my gun, okay, a couple hundred, you know, for other people to do things. You know what I mean? When I had to explain to her, $200 is nothing. I had to buy a gun. I had to buy a phone, I had to buy this car. As she starts talking, what's going on in the minds of the police officers is, wow, this woman is real. This plot is real. As a matter of fact, the board spent more money, you know, just to get it here. Right. Trying to tell her, look, however, which way you want it done, I'll do it. So I just want to make sure that, you know, this is what you want. She wants you to do when she's meeting with the hitman, he's telling her, look, there is no turning back. When I leave you today, you have no way to reach me. I explained to Dahlia that after today, she wouldn't be able to find me to cancel this whole plan that we put together. When it's done, you know, you have to have an option. You can't get money. And that's when Dahlia DiPolito says the phrase that goes around the world. I'm positive, like, we'll find out for that sure. Her line is classic. I am like 5,000% sure, right? So it's, you know, she is, she is so committed to this. I didn't think she was going to be uh, that open. I'm 5,000% sure. When I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. She told me she may look like an innocent little girl, but she's a whole lot tougher than she looks. The most surprising thing about my meeting with Dahlia was how adamant she was in making sure that this was done. Uh, okay, good morning. By the time you get back from the gym, you're going to find dead body in the house. All right. Once the Boynton police sees this video, they're having a field day. It's like the best day of their freaking lives. Like, literally, the criminal offered themselves up on a fucking plate. So they are arranging this fake crime scene, who is going to ring her, how to make all of this look real. And with these famous words, she has sealed her fate. But I would also like you to hang on them, because they will become crucial in one of her trials. And yes, I say one of her trials, because she didn't have one, she didn't have two of them, she had three trials. So let's briefly talk about them. It was a stunt. It was a hoax. A ruse, a plan that Mike DiPolito hoped to capture the attention of someone in reality TV. You were acting in those tapes. Yes. It didn't make an iota of sense to me. It was so far out of left field that they might just believe it. This first trial gave me such Casey Anthony vibes because it is so wild and so distracting of a defense that, again, it might actually work. I would like to say only in America. Like, I do not understand how this woman got to have free trials. I just cannot comprehend. But hey, it just worked. So the prosecution put Mike on the stand because they understood that he's a really likable character. So they play to that. 
And Mike here completely owned up to his past, to the fact that he was a convicted felon. And he kind of even had like some jokes running with a jury and with a prosecutor. And his testimony was all in all very well received. When Mike was on the stand, he testified that he met his ex-wife in October 2008 when he hired her for sex. But then they hit it off to the point that they were actually married less than four months later. Within a month in this marriage, she started stealing money from him, tried to get his probation revoked by planting drugs in his truck, and he also believes that she is the one behind spiking his drink with the antifreeze. And the prosecution really focused here on the video evidence, on these recordings. Like, they thought they had a slam dunk, but then defense came up with this whole reality show. They didn't have anything to back it up. They showed, like, Google searches made by Dahlia about a reality show, and honestly... (laughs) And honestly, if we are basing a trial on Google searches of a reality show, I mean, I might have gotten arrested, I don't know how many times this week. I binged on Too Hot to Handle within like two days. So, hey, guilty, fucking charge me. Like, what kind of bullshit is this? They could not give names of any of like the reality TV show producers that apparently she has been acting for. They had nothing going on for them, except maybe a few glances that she made towards this hidden camera, which is just her being paranoid and just looking everywhere. As Dahlia is kind of joking with her defense team, the prosecution read out explicit and graphic messages between Dahlia and her ex-lover, and she's kind of looking, just flipping through those papers as if she's reading a freaking Bible. Like, they're literally reading, like, all of these fucking sexually charged messages, and she's like, oh, it's fine. We were just intimate friends, like, while she was dating Michael throughout the whole freaking relationship and marriage. Dahlia's defense team to that said that, well, actually, Dahlia never sent those messages. No, this was Michael. Like, who is gonna believe this? I say this, I say this, and then the verdict will come along. So I'm gonna have to, like, bite all of my words. So actually, in this trial, the judge ended up finding Dahlia guilty, calling her plan pure evil and sentencing her to 20 years in prison. So what went wrong? Well, in 2014, this guilty conviction was kind of tossed out because of an appeal. As they managed to successfully appeal that the jury for this first trial wasn't appropriately selected. In 2015, she hires a duo of famous lawyers that she has seen on TV because she clearly watches all of the good stuff online and they allow her to have this interview that you're watching kind of throughout this podcast episode with ABC. And here, possibly the most unlikable lawyer of all times, Brian Claypool, enters the scene. At her pre-trial, the brilliant defense that her lawyers came up with was that Mike, Mohammed, and Dahlia, all three of them, did this for YouTube in order to get acting parts. But, you know, it just only happened that only her videos were shot. <laughs> like, how did these defenses fly? Like, you just need to invent some bullshit in court, apparently, in Florida, and, like, you're getting off of shit. At pre-trial here, she testifies and she can't answer the basic questions, like where was the script for this YouTube channel? 
how come there's only footage of you when three of you were in on it? And also, what is with the camera angles? Like, these really aren't your best angles, were they? These cameras could have really been placed in all of these different places to make you look more flattering. This is a reality show, after all. To this, she said she doesn't know because she wasn't the one taping it. Clearly, bitch. Clearly, you were oblivious and unaware of this situation, but for all different reasons. And her defense's lawyer closing statement was that it would be crazy for you to send her to prison, but also cruel as you'd be separating her from her infant son. And this was the news in the courtroom. They were like, wait, what? When did she get to have a son? You see, once her first conviction was tossed out and she was on house arrest awaiting the second trial, well, Dahlia had a visit from house maintenance, whatever, I don't know, her plumbing needed fixing. So somebody kind of like went through her pipes, if you know what I mean, and ended up that some of the spermies were successful. (laughs) And the young child was born. So Dahlia at this point in time had a toddler at home. During the second trial, the prosecution doesn't even put Mike on the stand. They just play the videos. And they're trying to prove that this is ridiculous, like whatever the defense is saying. And they didn't play just videos from the car. They played also the interrogation videos from the police station. Because let's just say the police actually does arrest you for your husband's murder. Like, aren't these the first words that are coming out of your mouth? Like, hey, this is a reality TV show stunt. What, you have to wait until they put handcuffs on you, until you serve some time in prison for your trial to make this as your defense? Like, these would be the first words coming out of your mouth. Now, during the actual second trial, the defense does something interesting. They drop the whole reality TV thing, and they go straight for the police. They said that the police was in on it. They put police officers on the stand, and Brian Claypool was accusing them of misconduct by staging the fake crime scene for the TV show Cups. He's attacking these police officers, saying like, oh, this is how you use the taxpayer's money. You just wanted to make good television. But the police officers stuck to their guns. They said, yes, we did cooperate with the TV show Cups, and it was purely for the recording purposes. Cops had nothing to do with this investigation, rather it was just coincidence that they were filming at the time. So yes, they have cooperated with the TV show, but this cooperation also saved Michael DiPolito's life. Yet again, it doesn't matter what you and I think in this story, because this jury saw some reasonable doubt somewhere in this freaking defense, and they were deadlocked, which meant that they had to declare a mistrial. So we go to the third trial, and here I think the prosecution realized that they need Mike. And they need Mike as a person. Like, they need to understand what I walked you through. So the psychology of it, the toll that this has taken on the guy, and who he was when he met Dahlia versus his life once he met her. Just within six months, the damage this woman had done. At this point, also, I'm pretty sure every single member of that jury was familiar with this case. Like, it was a cops episode, it was all over the media, and also it has been years, and she did have two trials. Here, the prosecutors actually decided to play the whole 23-minute video of Dahlia discussing the hit with the undercover officer, 
and agreeing to pay the money, the 5,000% confirmation, all of it. This video also confirmed that she planned to be at the gym when this stage burglary ending up in murder was to take place. Prosecutors also read text messages between Dahlia and her first boyfriend Mike from the beginning of this story from 2009 after the two of them got married. She didn't only use Mohammed, of course, she used Mike as well, and she had him impersonate a doctor to help her hide $100,000 theft by pretending to be pregnant, and later to impersonate a lawyer to make her husband think that he can complete probation, and then later Mike would have signed on whatever she wanted him to sign once she got the house and the money. Dahlia here had a different defense. Her lawyer said that she led an exemplary life and she should not be judged by the worst moment of her life. After the closing statements, the jury only took 90 minutes, and here Dahlia was finally convicted of the solicitation to commit first-degree murder and sentenced to 16 years in prison. It was a typically hot day in Florida, but that is not why Dahlia DiPolito was sweating. She was facing up to 30 years behind bars. Waiting for the verdict. What was that like? It's nerve-wracking. It's just really stressful, really tense. I've been advised that the jury has reached a verdict. The jury took just three hours to come to a decision. We find the defendant guilty of solicitation to commit first-degree murder. As numb, it wasn't at all what I was expecting to hear. Verdict to be the jury. I never had the impression or the understanding from my attorney that losing was a possibility. Everything was always, you know what, we got this. This statement doesn't add too much to the story, but for me, it defines who she is as a person. It's just like, oh, nobody told me that getting caught is ever going to be a possibility. The same way that she was stunned once Mike broke off with her. She's like, no, this is just not how my life works. She is still appealing and she still, well, believes that she should not be in prison. And either her lawyers will achieve her release or she will be free at the age of 49. Which also ain't that bad for this kind of caliber of criminal that Dalia DiPolito is. And in prison, she would get visits from her son at least once a month. Of course, that was reduced during COVID and she has not seen him for a while. She spends her days working in a cafeteria and is also leading a Bible study group. Her previous lawyer, the Claypool guy, told ABC that she was very well respected in jail for her faith. And it just strikes me that this is the only time that we actually know what this woman does on a day-to-day basis, once she's in freaking jail. Mike actually finally managed to pay all of the restitution because he was always doing well. He just needed a person that was stealing all of the money from him, being the cancer in his freaking life, to get the fuck out. He got engaged and he moved on with his life. So that is the story of Dahlia DiPolito. Now, what could have been her motives? There's a plentiful here, and I feel with these wannabe hitmen, you will always have the monetary gain. Throughout the six months of scheming that she has imposed on Michael, yes, the underlining motive is definitely monetary. 
She took his money, she wanted his house, she wanted to be provided for, and her ultimate goal was to place him in prison so that he can't get her in trouble for taking all of his money. Once she saw that those little schemes aren't working, then she decided to invest some of the money that she had stolen from him in order to get him killed. Here, Prophet was always the bigger picture, and all of the other people, the Mikes, the Mohammeds, all of the other people that she met through escorting before she met Mike, were just like the pawns in her little game. Because when I was researching this, I was thinking like, okay, so why didn't she scam anybody to this degree before Mike? And truly, the answer is that she knew exactly what she wanted from each person in her life. She knew how to use them in this calculated way. She had that girlfriend experience. She knew what each man wanted and how to manipulate them to the point that they would trust her, they would buy into her lies and just wouldn't question her. And with Dahlia in particular, personality-wise, the excitement was also a great component. She didn't follow the pathway certain scammers do, certain people who want to take out hits on others do, which is just doing it in a fast way, arranging a hit, getting it over with. She took her time, she enjoyed her life, she knew exactly what she was getting out of it at each point, but with these escalations starting off small and getting bigger and bigger... She just thought that this was gonna go her way as well, and she got fixated on not being found out, because then she would have lost everything. So let me know what you think about this case, and also if you have any ideas of who I should be talking about next. Because these wannabe hitmen, either they are Dahlia depleted, there's not too many of them that either aren't like really short news stories, or aren't just like historical and they're going like BC. But yeah, I really wanted to talk about this case because it's just next level. Like, just people cannot chill. They need this level of excitement in their life and they just never realize how insane it can get. Like, just have peace. Just lie on a couch and chill. That is truly the moral of this podcast. And while you're lying on your fucking couch and chilling, make sure you follow the homegirl at Pod across all socials, or you just email her, podbam at gmail.com. Be like, hey, Maya, yo, what's up, bitch? Yo, to hear that joint crack, Jesus, I really need vitamin D in my system. So I shall get out of this video, but not before I send you off to your next Zoom call. Listen, I need, I need my guardian angels all this. I need my own pawns in this game, because I have been venting about this on TikTok, and it just seems like, especially with TikTok in itself as a whole app, that nobody fully understands the concept of how wrong glamorizing murderers just is in this day and age. TikTok is literally like having hundreds of thousands of videos just purely around this niche topic. And once you're really deep into it, you just cannot unsee it. You just cannot understand. Like, just somebody needs to make it make sense to me. In particular, I'm talking about this guy that caused a traffic accident and everybody's saying it is an accident, but a woman and a child die in it. And now he has been convicted for 24 years. And the whole of TikTok is like, oh my God, he's so hot. Like we spoke about this. We had this whole thing with Bundy. First of all, he has frog eyes. Who decides on these criminals being hot? 
I just need to know that. That is what I need you to start up in your next Zoom call. That kind of conversation. Who the fuck decides which criminals are hot? And why don't those people have higher standards? People actually creating fan accounts on behalf of the criminals to then distribute their videos from court. Like, what do you get out of it? Just what kind of satisfaction is distributing that content bringing to you? Just please, somebody, make it make sense. And yes, the underlining theme is who the fuck decides that these frog eyes people with this white boy haircut that is covering their forehead are hot. They're like, whoa, the epitome of hot. And also, where are all of you people when you need to support the family members? Where is the empathy? Where are their fan accounts? Where are the petition pages to pay for their loved one's funerals? (sighs) So many questions, so little answers, and TikTok is profiting of it. (laughs) That is truly the honest truth of the fucking day. So yeah, don't go down that rabbit hole on TikTok. Just stick to people doing dances and still thinking they belong on Musical.ly because, hey, truly, it is the most honest place. It is the safer place. And if this network with one podcast on it is here to promote anything, it is to do what? To make this world a better, safer place. How do we do it? We do it one motive at a time. So keep questioning the TikToks and the accounts you see there. And in such a way, keep making this world a better place. That's it from me. Maya out. And I shall be seeing you this very Friday.